ready to go. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you with praise and honor for your great namesake. You have gathered us together to worship you. You have given us a season to be reminded of the glories of Christ, to be reminded of how he had unimaginable riches and dwelling with you, but then he came to dwell with us. He assumed a mean estate, a place of poverty, all for the sake of your people. And we pray for your people during this time. We pray that we are edified during this time. Pray for myself as I bring the word that you keep me from error and that I proclaim the gospel in a way that is powerful and the people leave encouraged for those that are in the kingdom and for those that are not, Lord. May we present the glories of being in the kingdom in a way that is powerful, in a way that is convincing, in a way that is glorious, in a way that magnifies you and show those around us what benefits there are in worshiping the one true God who has come to save his people. So I pray for us during this time, Lord. I pray for us that we are able to focus. You keep our minds from distraction. That you're able to show us who you are and who we are and why we need you. Why we need Jesus. And during this time when there can be so much distraction, whenever we leave this place, keep us focused, Lord. Keep us focused on the fact that that God has come to dwell among us. Fully God and fully man, but has come to dwell amongst his people, to save us. Show us our need for salvation. Send the Holy Spirit, Lord, to prick the hearts, to convict of sin, to bring more into the kingdom, Lord, all for your glory. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. So I'm excited today because I get to preach to you one of my favorite topics. Whenever the, uh, the Advent series scripture texts were being sent out, I jumped immediately on this one because this is one of my favorites, uh, one of my favorite topics. And so if you were paying attention, you may have noticed a common theme amongst all the hymns that were chosen today. Yes, they're all Christmas hymns, so there is that, except for maybe Psalm 2, but we set it to a Christmas tune. But there is something very specific about these particular Christmas hymns. And so to recount some of the lyrics, let's see if you can pick out a common theme here. Let earth receive her king. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. He rules the world with truth and grace. So that's one hymn. How about another? Come and worship, come and worship. Worship Christ, the newborn king. And then another. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. And rule in all our hearts alone. Raise us to thy glorious throne. Starting to pick it up. Starting to pick it up. And then also Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a Christmas psalm, if you did not know that. It is a Christmas psalm because it points us to the coming Messiah that is promised. Okay? The king that is going to reign forever and ever. So to quote that messianic, that kingly psalm, it says, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So I hope you figured it out by now. But let me tell you what I'm excited to preach this morning. I get to the answer that question that the wise men come into Jerusalem and they ask. They ask this question, where is he 
who has been born the king of the Jews? That's the question the wise men ask. Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? And then I get to join in with them. I get to join in. I get to urge you to emulate the response that they have. They ask that question, and then the very next thing they say, we have come to worship him. Where is he? We have come to worship him. So I get to preach today about Jesus as the promised king. Okay. So, like Brad pointed out last week, we're doing an Advent series. We're going to be going through the scripture text. Our primary text for each sermon might not be your traditional Luke's and Matthew's in an Advent series. We're going to go to different places, right? And we're going to show you that Jesus Christ is promised throughout all of scripture. Brad did a great job last week with John 1. There'll be others coming from Prashant and Dirk and Pastor Thomas, but not your traditional Christmas texts. And so today, I was given Jeremiah 33. We're going to focus on 14 through 16, but we're going to read 14 through 26 in just a minute. But let me set the, let me set the historical context for you before we do, because context is important when you're reading the Bible. So Jeremiah is going to write this prophecy. He writes this prophecy that's given to him by God, remember, Jerusalem is literally falling apart around him whenever God gives him this prophecy. The city is under siege by Babylon, the Babylonian army. There's fire, there's sword that God's promised. People are starving to death, literally starving to death. There is but a small amount of believers, a remnant, that are truly committed to God. The most significant thing, though, is that there is no king. Okay. There is no king when Jeremiah writes what he writes in Jeremiah 33. So after the reign of Solomon, the kingdom splits into the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. Judah, which we'll focus on, has 20 kings, only seven of which are described in the books of Kings and Chronicles as good kings. So only seven out of the 20 were called good kings. Two of them are kind of mixed, but the rest are wholly bad, completely bad. And at the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry, it's particularly precarious during the kingdom of Judah right during this time because whenever Jeremiah starts his ministry, the last four kings are all terrible. They're all particularly bad kings. But at least there was a king, right? At least whenever they're going back and they're reading Psalm 2, there's a king on the throne. But at the time of Jeremiah 33, Jerusalem now is all but conquered. And then the last king of Judah, Zedekiah, he's been carried off to Babylon whenever Jeremiah writes this, this chapter or this prophecy, and Zedekiah is going to die there. But God is going to come in and remind his people through Jeremiah of the hope that he has already promised. So he's going to remind him here. So read with me, Jeremiah 33. I'm going to read verses 14 through 26. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved. And Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, 
David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall, have, he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. And my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered, and as the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed that these people are saying the Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose? Thus they have despised my people so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, if I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. I'm going to go back and read 14 through 16 again because those are particularly important for our purposes today. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called the Lord is our righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. So you might have thought it strange in our paired scripture reading today in the New Testament, in this case, that we read a genealogy as the scripture reading. But it really shouldn't strike you strange at all because genealogies are actually very important in scripture, very important, especially to the Hebrew folks. They're important Really, because when someone was going to make a claim to land, that's how they made a claim to land. But more importantly, when someone is going to make a claim to a throne, the genealogy is extremely important. So Matthew, and by God's providence when God organizes the New Testament, puts forth the very first thing that you need to know about Jesus is that Jesus is the son of David. That's the first thing in the New Testament. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David. Even before the son of Abraham, the son of David. Why is this important? So we're going to turn also to 2 Samuel 7 in a minute. You know me, I go all over the Bible when I'm up here, so we're going to do that. We're going to turn there in just a minute. And before we do that, remember, Matthew is a Jew, and Matthew is writing his gospel primarily to Jews. Okay? But he's also writing it to us. But he's writing, and he says, the whole purpose of the kingship and the purpose of Israel itself is to bless all nations by being a shining beacon of the gospel and to proclaim God's sovereignty and his rule over all, ultimately leading all people to worship him alone. Even though Matthew is writing this, how does Matthew close? Matthew closes with the Great Commission, right? The whole purpose of this, the whole purpose of Israel was to point people back to God, even the nations around them. So why then is is Jesus being the son of David so important? Well, because Jeremiah speaks of him in Jeremiah 33 then. 
And he also spoke of him before, 10 chapters earlier in Jeremiah 23, in a very similar verse, very similar verse. In Jeremiah 23, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. It's a very, very similar refrain that's going on in Jeremiah right here. So all these messages are directed at these Jews completely. Your king is coming, your king is coming, and then Matthew, your king is here. Daniel spoke about this also. In Daniel chapter 7, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So David here is talking about the coming king too. I mean Daniel, not David. He's talking about the coming king also. Then all of those psalms, all those great kingly and messianic psalms that are going to sing about the king that God has placed on the throne. They're talking about the current king that is sitting on whose throne? Sitting on David's throne, but they're also taught pointing to the future king, which is why we read Psalm 2. When it was written, it's talking about both contexts, the king that is there and the king that's coming, the ultimate king that's coming. And all of this, all of this talk about the king, why were they so important? They're important because God makes an irrevocable promise to David. God makes an unconditional covenant with him in 2 Samuel 7. So we're going to read that because it's, it's so very important. In 2 Samuel 7, this is the Davidic covenant, verses 1 through 16. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel... Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and to cut off your enemies from before you, and I will make, and I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom." He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And here's the key. 
and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So, that's where all of this is leading to. Jesus as the promised son of David. That's why the New Testament opens up with it at the very beginning. The Christ, the king, has the rightful claim to the throne of David. So throughout all this, the Old Testament, throughout all the Old Testament, there's saints, the hope there for the Old Testament saints was that a righteous branch was going to sprout from David's tree. It's going to come. The righteous branch is coming. The sacrificial system could never save them. Salvation for those in the Old Testament was also by faith in Christ, just like ours is. Although what we see now by the full light of the gospel, they could only see dimly lit. But they were. They were looking forward to the coming kingdom. They were looking forward to the time when God's anointed, the Messiah, is going to reign forever on David's throne. And this fills the old pages of the Old Testament, completely fills it up. <laughs> and then so what about the testimony of the New Testament? That's what they're looking forward to in the Old Testament. The testimony of the New Testament is the same way. There are other New Testament passages that explicitly refer to Jesus as inheriting the throne of David Two examples of which, Luke 1. I said we weren't going to be in Luke 1, but I guess I lied, because here's Luke 1. Luke 1, this is what it says. This is when the angel Gabriel is talking to Mary, talking to Mary about who's in her womb. He says this, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, he shall, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Well, that's some great news. What about Acts 2? Acts 2. Peter's confirming the same thing over here. In Acts 2, verses 29 through 36, this is in Peter's great sermon. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So, the testimony of the New Testament is the same as the testimony of the Old Testament. This righteous branch is Jesus Christ. He is the son of David, and he sits on David's throne right now. And there's those other New Testament passages that don't explicitly refer to the throne of David, but you quickly come to the conclusion that this throne is so frequently spoke about, spoken about in the Bible, <laughs> and it's also not a physical throne. Jesus' throne does not mean that he is a political or a military leader of the Jews like they were looking for. His kingdom is universal and it's spiritual. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, the end of the, end of the book of Matthew says, And Jesus came to them 
and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority, absolute authority. And the absolute authority itself is only given to kings. And the only absolute authority over all creation is given to the Son of God. Other testimonies in the New Testament. The confession of Nathaniel at the end of John chapter 1. He says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. May this be our confession too. Then Paul in Philippians 2, he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Only kings are highly exalted. Knees only bow to kings. Paul again in 1 Timothy 6, speaking about Jesus, he says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion forever. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, has eternal dominion in both space and time. Peter again, after Acts, in 1 Peter 3, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The right hand of God is the place where David's throne is, and all the things of earth are, under the, are subject to the rule of Jesus Christ. And then, in these latter days, in these last days, the vision of John in Revelation 15 This is his vision of those who are part of the kingdom of God. They're sitting around and they're singing praises to Christ. And they're testifying and they're saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The last phrase sounds a lot like Jeremiah, right? The Lord is our righteousness. His righteous acts have been revealed. He is the king. He is the coming branch. He's the promised one from the son of David. (coughs) And so then, you can see then, this is just a small sample. The New Testament places a huge emphasis on the kingship of Jesus. So hopefully here you all know, if you don't, I'll tell you, the threefold office of Jesus Christ, the threefold offices. He's a prophet, he's a priest, and he's a king. Right? And sometimes, I'll say this, we focus maybe a little too much on those first two to the neglect of the third. Because, of course, those first two are important. Absolutely. Don't misunderstand me. The office of prophet is vastly important. He presents us to God through God's word and the procession of his Holy Spirit, compelling us to obey the Heavenly Father. Likewise, the office of priests, also vitally important, representing God to us, I'm sorry, representing us to God, presenting us to God, interceding for us, and making the ultimate sacrifice of himself on our behalf, his office of prophet, his office of priest. So obviously those two are important. But really, how often do you consider Christ as the king, right, in his office of the king? We want the benefits of Christ as our prophet and our priest. Those are desirable benefits, but oftentimes we don't want to bow down to him as the king, right? 
But that's, that's the testimony of the New Testament. Those men that we just surveyed, their message is one that primarily sounds something like this, for me to paraphrase. The king has come. The king has come and his name is Jesus the Christ. He has offered himself. He has been raised up both from the dead and through his ascension, he has claimed his rightful throne, the throne of David, his father. Come, come and follow him. Come bow down to him for his judgments are righteous. They're echoing the same thing that Jeremiah is saying, the same thing that Jeremiah said in 23 and 33. And likewise, everyone who is in his kingdom, we who are here, we're going to go say the same thing. We're supposed to go out and say the same thing. The king has come. Come, follow him. This is the primary message for evangelism too. For how does Jesus begin the Great Commission? We already read it. Even before he tells the followers to go forth into all nations, he announces the reason that they have the right to do this at all. The right that they have to do this is that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the only reason why evangelism makes any sense. It's the only reason why it may, may work at all is because all authority has been given in heaven and on earth to Jesus Christ. His kingship is the basis for the authority of evangelism. And so in a specific way, also, the kingship of Israel in the Old Testament served very similar. It was a very similar way that it served. The king functioned then as an executor of the laws of God. One of the king's primary roles. He was responsible for, one, upholding the law himself. Kind of his first responsibility. He was to uphold the law himself. And two, he was supposed to make sure that his subjects upheld the law. And so, did Jesus fulfill these things? Yes, of course. Because we know that as the final king, he fulfilled the kingly directive perfectly, like no other. Which is why he has the right to be worshipped as king. Number one's pretty cut and dry, Right? God, Jesus, followed the law perfectly. Number two might not be as straightforward. Remember, number two was to make sure his subjects upheld the law. We do that? But in one sense, he does this because Jesus says if we love him, we're going to keep his commandments. Okay, So he is there to make sure his subjects uphold the law. If we love him, we keep his commandments. In other words, if we're in the kingdom, we're going to obey God's moral law. Also reflected in Jeremiah 31, in the promise of the new covenant, where it's explicitly stated that all of those who are in the new covenant are going to have the law of God written on their hearts. So we've got this now conundrum on our hands, because we all know that no matter how pure our motives, no matter how much we try, we are constantly breaking God's law. So we've got a problem now. None of us can satisfy the standards that God has set in place. So then, has Jesus failed in the kingly duty of making sure his subjects uphold the law? No, of course not. But why? I just told you. That is answered by that wonderful title that is given to the branch that, is com- that comes in the last phrase of Jeremiah thirty-three sixteen. Who's our righteousness? The Lord is our righteousness. It's not ours. Right? That is why we can stand before a holy God, is because the Lord is our righteousness. We're not good people. But the beauty of the gospel is that our righteousness is not what gets us into heaven. 
It's the righteousness of Christ. Nothing else. We are wretched, filthy worms that without Christ are left to just wiggle around in the muck of our own sinfulness. But God comes. God comes and he plucks us out from that reality and he brings us into the kingdom and he lets us, and he sees us as he sees his son who is our righteousness. All because our king has satisfied the demands of the law. And then there's more functions of the kingship in the Old Testament. Other functions of the king. His rule was meant to bless those in the kingdom, but also the king of Israel was supposed to bless those outside of the borders of Israel. This is how he did that. Through the rule of a righteous king, Israel was supposed to be a light. Israel was supposed to be a beacon. Israel was supposed to be a blessing to the nations that surrounded her. Because God's glory is most magnified when he's worshipped beyond the borders of Israel. And so the surrounding lands are supposed to see that following God's law leads to blessings. They're supposed to see that Israel's different than all of these other places that worship these multitudes of gods, and they worship these cast metal, and they worship this wood, and they do all of these practices that God has forbid. Israel's different than that. And because... Israel worships God only, worships the one true God, that is supposed to motivate all the pagan nations around them to also worship the one true God. The king is the one that is supposed to lead the nation in this endeavor then. And thus, Jesus leads us this way too. So the pagans around us are to see that we're different. They're to see that we worship the one true God. They are to see that our dispositions aren't affected by what the world and what Satan throws at us. They see that we're grounded. They see that we're anchored to the leadership of our king and not to what we think is best. And they see that through our king, we overcome. So we press on. We press on in obeying his commands and loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we press on by calling those to repentance and those to say, come, Come and follow the King. And by the work of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, these folks that we live amongst will see the light of the gospel and come and worship the King. The King leads us in this way, just like the kings of the Old Testament led Israel in that way, or supposed to. (laughs) And then more details about this King. This King had a, a, a coronation, but not exactly where you might think. In the three Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke... They all preface the account of the transfiguration of Jesus by announcing that those whom Jesus is talking to won't taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Right? Three specific disciples there, apostles there. And then after that, all three of these gospels, they immediately lead into the transfiguration account. And so thus... They say, you're not going to taste death until you see the kingdom of God coming. And then the next verse in both Matthew, Mark, and Luke all lead directly into the transfiguration account. And so they're connecting here. They're connecting the transfiguration to really the beginning of the inauguration of the kingdom that has come. And Jesus, he's announced here at the very beginning of the gospel of Matthew as king, the son of David. We've reiterated that many times and confirmed by others throughout the book of Matthew. And it's confirmed again by God the Father during Jesus' transfiguration. 
is proclaimed loudly by Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. In three of the four gospel accounts of this event, he is called specifically the King of Israel. In two of the gospel accounts, he's called specifically the Son of David. And this is Matthew's account of the event. Matthew's account of the event is in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 9. And this is what it says. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put it on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. (coughs) And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. There it is, the pronouncement of the crowds right there. Hosanna to the son of David. That's more about the king. Even more, all four gospel accounts specifically state that Pilate directly asked Jesus if he is the king of the Jews. This is on all four gospel accounts. He says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds, it is as you say. But this king, this king that has been affirmed as king many times now, he has a crown. But he does not have a crown that is made with gold or jewels. This king is crowned with a crown of thorns. This is how John describes the scene here in John 19, verses 1 through 6. He says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold, the man! When the, chief, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Now skip down to verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Oof. And then down to verse 19. Down to verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was where Jesus was crucified, was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests 
of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. This is the king of the Jews. The people walk by mocking him. They go by saying, What kind of a king hangs on a cross? I'm going to tell you what kind. A king that is willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice for his subjects. He was flogged, he's mocked, he's crucified, he incurs the total and complete wrath of God on the behalf of you and me. But this king is not bound by nature's laws. The grave could not hold him. He was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit, he ascended, and he sits eternally on the throne of his father David in the heavens. And one day, he's returning, he's coming back, scepter in hand, when all will bow to him. And you're either going to bow to him in submission and reverence, or you're going to bow to him in judgment and in terror. But all, all are going to declare, this is the king of, the king, king of kings, and this is the Lord of lords. This is the king. He's here. He's come. So you're going to ask yourself, you might ask, how in the world, the same people that we just read about in Matthew 21, they come in, Jesus is riding in, and they're crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And the same people turn around just a short while later, and they call out, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. How does that happen? Well, first of all, it's because their hearts are blind and hard, but also they didn't understand the Scriptures. They thought that the passages like that in Jeremiah and those in the Old Testament meant that their king was coming with the political and military might, and that he's going to come and he's going to conquer the nations in this way. And as a side note, present-day Jews are still looking for this Messiah to come to conquer militarily and politically. And even the apostles who truly loved Jesus didn't fully understand what Jesus means when he says, my kingdom is not of this world. They didn't understand it yet. The reason why is this is proved in the scriptures because the last question that Luke records the apostles asking Jesus before his ascension, this occurs in Acts chapter 1, this is the last question they ask him. They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus' response is so good. He says, it's not for them to know. And then he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So there's the kingdom. It goes to the ends of the earth. It's not Israel. It's not bound by any sort of political borders. It's to the ends of the earth, and it's brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's where we are now. And this kingdom, this kingdom is not about colors, it's not about races, it's not about tribes, ethnicities, language, wealth, poverty, social status, like I said, even physical boundaries. The kingdom has nothing to do with any of that. This kingdom is defined by only one thing. The kingdom is defined by its king. So any person, any person who is willing to repent of their sins and confess Jesus as Lord and Savior is part of the kingdom. And this kingdom, this kingdom, there are so many benefits. There's work, but the work has meaning in the kingdom. There's rest, and the rest is not like anything else. There can be sorrow in the kingdom, but those in the kingdom recognize that sorrow has a purpose. And there's joy in the kingdom, 
not just fleeting happiness, but joy that the king has promised to make full. There's death in the kingdom also. There's physical death. But there's resurrection that the king has promised. And then there's life. There's hearts that are formerly of stone that have been turned into flesh. Once, we're, once that were dry bones have been shaken, they've come in alive. There's life in the kingdom because the giver of life is worshipped in the kingdom. And so then, after hearing this, how do you respond then? How do you respond? There's a refrain that's also interspersed throughout the book of Matthew whenever people realize they have a true realization that Jesus has assumed his throne. There's a refrain that's echoed here. So whenever a person has truly encountered the Messiah, the King, the Son of David, and the person truly realizes who he is, who I am inside, the response is clear and powerful, and it's echoed throughout Matthew. It says, have mercy on me, Son of David. Have mercy on me. This is what it says in Matthew 9.27. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Matthew 15.22 And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And then again in Matthew 20. Behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them. They said, be quiet, be silent, and they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So then, whenever these people, they see, they know that they're blind, they know that they are lame, When you truly encounter your blindness, when you truly encounter the deformities of your spirit and how ugly and crippling your sins make you, you call out like these, have mercy on me, son of David. That is the cry. So here, if you're here, if you're blind, if your soul is oppressed and weary, if your spirit is not united to Jesus, if you feel the crippling weight of your sin, this is the response. Mercy, cry out for it. Son of David, have mercy on me. Because the Son of David is quick to heal. He's quick to forgive. Like he's promised in Jeremiah, he's just, he's righteous to forgive sins. His scepter is one of strength, but is also one of mercy, and this mercy endures forever. And then those of you who are already in the kingdom, encouragement, right? There's so much encouragement here because the king of glory sits on his throne at this very moment. So in the Christmas season, don't get caught up in the excess. It's great to display Jesus and to tell people about Jesus and to celebrate his coming to dwell amongst us. Absolutely. Remember this wondrous mystery that God has taken on flesh. Yes, the king of all glory, creator of all things, subjected to the humiliation of being born in a place where animals eat their food. He's taken from the riches of the best dwelling to conditions of poverty. But also, don't constrain yourself to just remembering Jesus this way. Remember that Jesus is enthroned on high. He is sitting on David's throne. He's ruling in our hearts, and he's bringing about the means to accomplish his ends. Nothing can defeat him, human nor demon. In the Old Testament then, in closing, look at a few more verses of Scripture. The Old Testament closes looking forward to the establishment of of Christ's kingdom. 
It gives us a wonderful lead into the New Testament. Remember how the New Testament began. Talked about it many times already. Matthew opening up that the son of David, Jesus Christ, is here. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, ends this way. In Malachi 4, this is what it says. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That day is coming... The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, that's pointing to Jesus, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. That's where Charles Wesley got that great line in Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You shall go leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Well, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. There it is, like Brad pointed out last week. Elijah the prophet, that's John the Baptist, coming to point out Jesus. He's here. Malachi is pointing to him right there, and then immediately he jumps into Matthew. Jesus is here, the son of David. So that's how the Old Testament closes. The New Testament then closes looking forward to the return of the king, when the spiritual kingdom has been consummated into a physical kingdom. John opens his account of the condition of these last days by reminding his readers of what we have already been reminded of today. In Revelation 1, this is how John opens his account in verses 4 through 8. In his greetings, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to God, priests to his God, his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, that's the claim to deity, who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. John says he's, Jesus is presently ruling, although this is a spiritual rule. God, John then closes with the fact that what is spiritual is not, soon going to become physical. So in Revelation 22, John connects these two. Jesus connects these two because he's speaking here. He says, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Listen to how he connects back to chapter 1 here. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So be prepared. He's coming. He's coming soon. So we are who are in the kingdom but looking forward to that day greatly. So we pray that he returns quickly. No one knows the time or place, but we are to be prepared. We are waiting with such great anticipation at the return of our king when the kingdom is fully consummated and the kingdom reaches its fullest potential. No more suffering no more death, no more sin, 
but only a reality that has us being brought into something that's even better than Eden. We're all going to live in harmony because as that great hymn says, I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. So saints, we pray, we pray that Jesus comes quickly. And then as members of the kingdom, may our hearts be filled with untold amounts of worship and of praise of our King. Not only when he returns, but right here, right now. So as we close the service today, after the Lord's Supper, we're going to sing, What Child Is This? And so it has that refrain in there. Let's sing that refrain with some vigor, some gusto. Haste, haste to bring him laud. In other words, come quickly, come to praise and worship him. In our confession, our hope is contained right there within that song. This, this is Christ the King. The King has come, saints. Let us praise and worship Him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do love and adore You. We thank You for sending Your Son. We are thankful that He lived a perfect life, upholding the law completely on our behalf that he died, that he rose, and that he sits on the throne of his father David. May all of those here who do not see his kingship do so quickly. For those of us here who are in the kingdom, may our hearts be ever filled with praise and worship of him. And we do pray that he returns soon to make all things new. We look forward to that day, but until then... We pray for your continued forgiveness, all for your glory. In Christ's name we pray.